Take your Bibles, if you would, please. We're going to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. At this time, if you're in first through third grade, you can go ahead and exit towards the back towards your class this morning. Matthew, chapter 5. beginning of the year, we, uh, we started a series here in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, and we haven't gotten very far, all right? We've done, uh, we've done verses 1 through 5 so far. We've covered several of the Beatitudes that Christ gives to the group there that he's speaking to on the Mount, and today we're going to be examining together the fourth Beatitude in verse number 6. Before we begin, though, I'd like to ask you a question. What brings guaranteed happiness, and how do we get it? What brings guaranteed happiness, and how do we get it? Is it for sale down the road at Target? Most of the moms would say yes, right? A new pillow always brings happiness. You don't agree with that? Okay, a couple of you do. All right. Is it down at uh, McDonald's? <laughs> no, it was not down at McDonald's. <laughs> a couple of you, maybe, right? Where is guaranteed happiness found and how do we get it? Well, I'd like you to consider this phrase as we begin this morning. Spiritual health and lasting satisfaction come from hunger. Spiritual health and lasting satisfaction comes from hunger. The beatitude we're going to be looking at this morning follows logically from the previous first three beatitudes that Christ deals with. It's actually the logical conclusion that they come to, and I think you'll find that it's a very comforting yet convicting phrase here from Christ. In fact, I'd say that we could, we could say together that there's perhaps no greater test that anyone can apply to themselves than the verse that we're going to be looking at this morning in verse number 6. There's a clear distinction that Christ makes between those who find satisfaction and those who are still seeking for it in all the wrong places. You've either got it or you don't. And we'll put ourselves to the test a little bit later on. Now the first three Beatitudes here show us man's great need. The man's great need... The way for someone to be made happy spiritually is only found through God, through kingdom citizenship. In verse number three, first we see the man who comes to God must be poor in spirit. He must recognize that he is spiritually bankrupt in God's sight and has nothing to offer. And then in verse four, second, he must mourn. There's a sorrow for sin that is in us and the sin that affects us. All of life around us. And then in verse 5, the third thing is the man who would experience God's salvation must first be meek. Meek referring here to the lowly place before God so that the man might receive salvation from God. All three of these beatitudes express man's great need. Now in verse 6, the fourth beatitude is where we see the solution. If someone will thirst... And hunger for righteousness, God will fill them with righteousness and declare them righteous. 
Before God, this man is justified and he embarks on a journey of complete satisfaction and blessing. My friends, this verse is truly precious because it offers a solution to man's greatest need by pointing to the offer of God's greatest remedy in Christ. Jesus calls on all of those who would hear these beatitudes, these lists of characteristics of what a kingdom citizen looks like. He calls on us to examine ourselves, but then immediately gives us the solution. The solution is this. Seek the righteousness that comes from God, something totally outside yourself, and there you will find satisfaction. In fact, in this verse, we have one of the most remarkable statements concerning the gospel and everything it has to give to us. This is a declaration of good news to all who are unhappy about themselves and their current spiritual condition. It's a relief to those who have, verse 3, 4, 5, they've taken an honest look at themselves They've, they've seen that they have nothing to offer. They've mourned for their sin. They've lowered themselves before God. And this verse gives the answer for the person who is seeking to be part of God's kingdom. That's what this is. A list of kingdom characteristics. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the pathway to true satisfaction. We're going to examine where people look for satisfaction in just a moment, but perhaps you've come this morning and you are wandering. You're looking. You're trying to find something that lasts for forever. And there's something in you, you know there's got to be something more than what you're experiencing. My friends, Jesus offers to you this morning lasting Lasting peace, lasting satisfaction. In this verse, Jesus declares that the pathway to happiness, the pathway to true blessing, is the pathway of what? Spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. So spiritual health and spiritual satisfaction come from hunger. Now, I think the simplest way here to approach this text this morning is to take a term at a time. This is one of those texts that divides itself up quite nicely for us, so all we have to do is look at these terms, see how they correlate to each other, and allow God's word to be applied to our hearts. So if you look at the text, you'll see that most of the verse is anchored and wrapped around this term righteousness. Righteousness. It says, blessed, happy, are those who hunger for and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is declaring here that these are the people, and only these people are truly happy, truly satisfied people. You're not going to find anyone else outside of this qualifier. I think we'd all agree here that the world around us, our world is seeking for happiness. There's no question about that. Everyone wants to be happy. Unless you're a little crazy in the head, everybody wants to be happy. No one wakes up in the morning looking for ways to be sorrowful, 
to add more pain to what life already brings to you. It's the great motive behind every act that we see, every ambition in anybody's life. It's behind all the work, all the striving, all the effort. For some of you, the pursuit of your happiness begins every day with that first cup of coffee. Would you agree with that? Where are my coffee drinkers? Where are you at? Have you found happiness today yet? Did it last very long? <laughs> no, not long enough, right? Seen those mugs, right, that had those levels on them of the first one, the top one, it says, shh, <laughs> don't talk to me. <laughs> and then it goes down a little bit more after you drunk a little bit more, and it says, almost. And then all the way down the bottom it says, now you may speak. <laughs> that's your happiness, right? That, that cup of brew in the morning. Maybe that's not for you, but happiness is found in other places. You, you pursue it, our world pursues it in work or in sports or in that perfect vacation that seems like it's going to be just perfect until you get there and then you're like, well, I need a vacation from vacation, right? Or maybe you look or you, you're, 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 you're gazing for happiness, searching for happiness in children or a spouse or in that dream home that you've always wanted. The list, my friends, could go on and on and on. But here's the reality. Whatever the means might be, the goal is the same, always. Everything in this world is designed for the goal of happiness. But here's the great tra tragedy. The tragedy of our world is that it gives itself to seek for happiness, but it never seems to be able to find it. It always comes up short. So there's, in the text this morning, a promise of blessedness, a, a, a promise of happiness. What does this mean? Well, let me put it bluntly to you in a negative way. We are not to hunger after blessedness. We are not to hunger after happiness. And you say, well, duh, that's what it says in the text. But what's the reality? That's what most people are doing. Their hunt is happiness. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing we desire, and therefore, what's the result? We miss it. It always eludes us. It's like cupping your hands together and turning on a faucet to catch running water and letting it slip right through your fingers. According to Scripture, happiness is never something that we seek directly. It's always something that results from seeking something else. The pattern and the lifestyle of our world, though, is to get happiness, not righteousness. And we see it obvi obviously manifested in many different ways. In their families, in their work, in their choices of pleasure, they're trying to find satisfaction. Something that will fill them up. But they don't find it. Why? Because whenever you put happiness... Before righteousness, you're doomed to misery. And that's the great message of the Bible. From beginning to end, that only those who seek righteousness are truly happy. Folks, if we put happiness in the place of righteousness, we will never, ever get it. Let me illustrate it this way. Think, think of a suffering man who's suffering from a painful disease. Normally the goal for this kind of situation is relief of his pain. That's his goal. 
No one likes suffering pain. The main goal for this patient is to do anything he can do to find relief for it. But if the doctor who is attending this patient is only concerned about relieving his pain, we would say, what about that doctor? He's not a very good doctor. Why? Because the doctor's primary duty is to discover the cause of the pain instead of treat that instead. Pain, my friends, is that wonderful symptom that provides us the help we need to draw out that cause, the disease itself. And the ultimate treatment for pain is to treat the disease, not the pain itself. We can imagine how fatal it would be if if a doctor made a choice like this. The focus on pain instead of the problem. The patient would be free from pain, yet all seems to be well, yet the cause of the trouble is still there. And that's, that's exactly what our world does. It says, I want to be rid of my pain. I want to be rid of my problems, so I'll turn to pleasure. I'll turn to friendships. I'll turn to work. I'll, I'll find anything that will find some relief of my pain. Folks, lasting peace is not found in any of that. It's not found in those who hunger and thirst for happiness. It's not found in them. No, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. We can sit here and blame the world quite easily, right? We're here gathered as a group of believers And it's easy to look at our world and say, yes, that is their pursuit. But it's equally true of many within the church. There are many within the Christian church who seem to spend their whole lives seeking for some kind of spiritual experience. They're hoping that they're going to get this wonderful thing that's going to fill them up with joy and flood them with some kind of delight. Perhaps they've seen it or perceived it that others have it, and they seem to not find it themselves. They seek it, they covet after it, but they never get it. The ultimate spiritual experience continues to evade them. It evades them, and this is not surprising. Why? Well, because we're not meant to hunger after experiences. We're not meant to hunger and thirst after blessedness. Is that a surprise to you? We're not here as disciples of Christ in pursuit of bliss. My friends, we are here in pursuit of righteousness. We can't put blessedness and happiness or experience as our main objective. Any spiritual experience we have is truly, simply, a gift from God. What you and I are to covet, therefore, is to seek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. So blessing is the promise. Happiness is the promise that Jesus extends to those who hunger and thirst. But what does this righteousness term mean then? What is this righteousness? Well, first I want to start with what it does not mean. It does not mean here, to search for righteousness does not mean that we're adding to ourselves and attaining to a greater general morality or virtue about ourselves. 
This is kind of the idea of honoring a contract or keeping your word or fair play, this social righteousness. Right, not to say that those things are unimportant or even wrong, but this is the kind of morality that was taught by the Greek pagan philosophers of that day. The Christian gospel does not stop at this level of morality. Gospel righteousness is not that at all. Because, frankly, there are men who talk of this kind of ethical, moral uprightness who know very little about personal righteousness. They conduct themselves in talks of peace and honor and yet completely miss the mark and are unfaithful in their personal lives and lack the backbone to embrace true righteousness. The gospel does not teach this kind of righteousness. Its concept of righteousness is much, much deeper than that. It's not simply a sense of morality or or higher ethics. Not only is it not general ethics, morality, virtue, but second and perhaps far more serious here, the term righteousness that Jesus is referring to, it would not be right to define this righteousness in this context even as justification. Now, before you pack up your things and walk out, okay, hear me out. Perhaps in past readings of this text, you've read through this and assumed that the righteousness Jesus is referring to here is merely the justifying work that is imputed to us at the moment of salvation. The justification of our souls, the forgiveness of sins. And and this term, righteousness, in this vein, is a very familiar term to us. In fact, Paul, the apostle, uses this term in the book of Romans in chapter 1 and chapter 3, where he writes about the righteousness of God, which is by faith. It comes by faith. And there, Paul is talking about the work of justification in those passages of Scripture. With the context provided, we'll see that generally, it makes it perfectly clear the meaning for us. You'll find very often in Scripture that righteousness does, in fact, mean justification. But I would suggest here, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, it means more. Because the very context of Matthew 5, these first three Beatitudes we've looked at already, I believe give us a, a much clearer picture of its true and complete meaning. I believe the righteousness included here is not only for justification, but sanctification also. In other words, the desire for righteousness that Jesus is calling us to, the desire for righteousness, the act of hungering and thirsting, means this. means ultimately the desire to be free from sin in all its forms and all of its manifestations. This is an inner righteousness, justification, that works itself out in one's living in conformity with God's will, sanctification. You are called, therefore, by Christ to pursue, thirst after, righteous living. Righteousness. What is this righteous living, this desire to do right the sanctification look like? Well, I suggest to you that there are three ways 
that we seek to be free from sin in all of its forms, in all of its manifestations. There are three ways. First, it's the desire to be free from the presence of sin. The presence of sin. It's the desire to be right with God. The desire for righteousness is the desire to be right with God fully. A desire to be rid of sin because sin is what comes between us and God It keeps us from the very knowledge of God, that sweet fellowship that we once enjoyed, that we were created to have with God. In other words, the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who sees sin and sees the rebellion as having separated him from the face of God, and he longs to get back into that sweet fellowship. The presence of sin interrupts that. He longs to be free from the presence of sin. But second, it's also desire to be free from the power of sin. The power of sin. Folks, as you look at these first three Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, you realize that it should naturally lead you to a place for longing that sin has no more power in your life. A person who is in Christ, is pursuing him, will want sin to have no major strongholds in his life. If you are thirsting and you are hungering and Christ is the goal for you, there will be very few, if any, strongholds, power of sin over your life. Paul reminds the Romans in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of this very glorious truth where he says that you and I experience now because of Christ freedom from the power of sin. He gives a reminder to them. He says that we no longer are alive to our sinful flesh, but we are actually, in fact, dead to it. We who have been raised to new life in Christ no longer have the power of sin over us. He says, consider yourselves, what? Dead to sin and alive to God. And if that's your position this morning, he says, let, therefore, let no sin reign in your mortal body. And he concludes by saying, because sin no longer has the dominion over you. You're dead to it. You're alive to God. My friends, can I pause this morning? And encourage your heart, no matter where you have been and how you've been doing and how much you failed this past week, no matter how poorly your pursuit of righteous living has gone this week, if you are in Christ and He is in you, you are free. You're free. You're free from the power of sin and the dominion of sin in your life. You can say no. You don't have to say yes. You can say no to your flesh by the grace of God. And as we pursue righteousness, we will, by grace, desire deeply to be free from the power of sin in our lives. We will live in a way that Paul tells us to live, free from sin and the dominion of it. Not only the presence of sin or the power of sin, but thirdly, 
those who are pursuing righteous living are longing to be free from the very desire for sin. The desire for sin. If we examine our hearts in the light of Scripture, not only do we discover that the power of sin in our flesh is strong within us, but perhaps even more horribly is that we like our sin. We want it. We actually crave it. Even after we see how terrible it is and how ugly it is in the sight of God, we still indulge in sin. We run right back to it for its temporary pleasure. We crave, we want, we enjoy it. I don't know if you've ever, um, if your grandmother loved you enough to make you your favorite cake or your favorite pie, and you would come to her house and you would smell it being made and she would look at you with a giant smile on her face and say, this is your cake or this is your pie and you're just so excited to dive into it. But then she says, you need to wait until later. And you're like, no, wait a minute. Why? Why wait? She's like, well, it has to cool down. No, it doesn't, right? All that old thing about cakes cooling down, that's just weird, right? So what do you do? She leaves the room and the icing on the cake don't judge me, because I know you've done this too, okay? What do you do? You go by, and you kind of just, you, you did a little finger swipe, and uh, you kind of smoothed it back out so she wouldn't know that you got a little bit. So you come back a little bit later, and you come back, and you keep coming back until you can't hide anymore what you've done. There's a significant dent in the top of the cake, right? You, you can't say no because it's your favorite. It's grandma's pie. It's grandma's cake. You know you shouldn't, but you just want it so badly. You know the end result, but you just crave it so intensely. My friends, if we're pursuing righteous living, if we're seeking to add to our lives righteous living, we hunger and thirst for that, we will want sin a whole lot less. The desire for sin will dissipate. The man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is a man who wants to get rid of that very desire for sin. Scripture tells us that the flesh that we live in will constantly be at war with the Spirit. When? Till when? Till the very day that we receive a new body. 1 John 2.16 reminds us that the lust, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, These are the prevailing desires of our body. That's what we war against. That's what we so easily say yes to because we want it so badly. We love to fulfill these desires. But friends, by grace, we can ask the Father to give us new desires that align more closely with the righteous living that we are hungering for. Those who hunger for righteousness will supernaturally begin to hate sin more and more as they see what? Well, the pursuit of righteous living will eventually dull the desire for sin in your life. It will become less appealing. Why? Because as you begin to see Jesus, and as you begin to pursue righteousness, it will become far more precious and far more beautiful as you behold Christ. They don't, they don't even compare. 
When you, when you see Christ in all of his glory, and that is your hungering and your thirst and your pursuit, and yet your sin and your flesh and the desires that you have, you look at the two of them, it's an obvious choice. But if you aren't pursuing Christ, if you aren't pursuing righteous living, if that's not your objective, the desires of your flesh will be strong. My friends, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is the desire to be free from self in all of its forms, all of its manifestations, to be right with God and live righteously. Because according to the previous Beatitudes we looked at, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, a man who is meek, poor in spirit, and who mourns is a man who starves, starves for true righteousness, a righteousness that can only be found in God. This is a man who longs to be free from all sin and self-righteousness of the past. He hungers for the righteousness that God offers. Not only is pursuing righteousness the defeating of our flesh, the saying no to the sin that no longer has power and dominion over us, but it is saying yes to something else. Up to this point, we looked kind of at the negative side, so let me put it positively to you. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is nothing more than the longing to be positively holy or to be right, to live right. In other words, the man who seeks after this is a man who wants to exemplify the Beatitudes in his daily life. He's a man who wants to show the fruit of the Spirit in every thought and in every deed, and in every action. Because the hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long to be like the New Testament man, the new man in Christ. That's what this means. That my whole life, my whole being, would be like that, the new man. Let's go a step further with this. It means that your supreme desire is to know God, and to be in fellowship with Him, to walk in fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Folks, the man who thirsts and hungers for righteousness, in the end, ultimately, is longing for what? He's longing to be like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When we look at Christ and we see who he is. What do we see? We see the depiction of this righteousness that we are craving for. We see him in the Gospels. We see him in full submission and obedience to the Father's will. We see his love for the people around him, his kindness, his compassion, all that he does. My friends, this is the portrait. This is the pattern that you and I have been born again to and continue to be fashioned after. It's Jesus. The righteous living that Jesus is calling us to is not simply sinning less and becoming the better version of yourself. No, rather we actively pursue Christ. We put Him on. We're not looking to be simply less like the world, but in fact aggressively becoming more like the very Son of God. My friends, what is the object of righteous living? 
What is the object of your hunger and your pursuit? Christ is. You pursue Christ as the object of your righteous living. Therefore, the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the man who wants to be like that. His supreme desire is to be like Christ. So we've we've defined righteousness, and we've seen that the conclusion of that is happiness for those who pursue Jesus. As he is the object of our pursuit, we will find what the world is looking for, blessedness, happiness. But what about these terms, hunger and thirst? Hunger and thirst. If you notice in the text here, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice with me the intensity of the terms that Christ is using here. To hunger and thirst represent the very necessities of physical life itself. The analogy that Jesus uses here, he uses and demonstrates this, that righteousness is required for spiritual life just as much as food and water are required for physical life. I'll say it again. Jesus demonstrates that the righteousness we pursue for spiritual life is just as important and as much as food and water are required for our physical well-being and life. We can no more live spiritually without righteousness than we can live physically without food or water. It's not possible. Now today, most of us, I would say fairly few of us, really know what real hunger is. Very few of us would even know what it means to have momentary thirst. But throughout world history, there have been many, many times of great famine and starvation. The famine that is depicted for us in Scripture in Egypt in the time of Joseph. Then in Rome in 436 B.C., where it rose to such a severe nature that people began to throw themselves into the Tiber River instead of, dr- instead of die, uh, they would die of drowning instead of choosing to starve. History recounts famines in England in A.D. 1005, and then all of Europe in 879, 1016, 1162. And even in our own century, despite advances in agriculture and technology, Many parts of our world still experience periodic famines. And even in recent years, Africa has seen some of the most devastating famines in world history. Per the Red Cross, there are communities today, currently, over this past month even, in the countries of Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia, right there in the Horn of Africa, who are experiencing some of the worst food crises in the past 40 years. In Somalia alone, there are 6.5 million people who don't have proper access to food and water that they need to survive today. Parents are forced to skip meals so that their children can eat. And sometimes parents are not even eating food for themselves. Of course, there are multiple factors for this, right? There's, there's um, 
swarms of locusts that come and eat crops and destroy anything that is made. There is uh, political conflict in most of these countries that uh, allow for food shortage. There are year-to-year droughts that don't allow for food and water. And as we think about this, we, we say, man, that is that's truly, in the greatest sense of the word, it is devastating. It's devastating to think of a situation like this where someone would not have food or water, where starvation is the case. The very thought of being without food and water is, frankly, it's scary to contemplate. These are the basic necessities of life for survival. We need food, water. You can survive a very short time without water, uh, without food, but a very, very short time without water. It's a necessity of life. And perhaps we become immune to the reality of what it means to truly be hungry and thirsty. Right? At some point in your childhood, you looked at a parent and you said what? I'm starving. And your dad, with a slight grin, he goes, nice to meet you, starving, right? Any dads guilty of that? I am. And then my parents look at me and they say, what? Son, you may think you're starving, but we ate 30 minutes ago, right? <laughs> really? What do we have? Well, let me remind you what we had. Right? We just had our meal. In fact, most of us, when we sense even a tinge of hunger, all we need to do is open the refrigerator or the pantry. But we have food at our fingertips. If we're thirsty, all we need to do is open the faucet, the tap, and cold, refreshing water comes right out. However, to the average person listening to Christ that day, the expression was terribly real and alive. Because the audience he was talking to was never far away from the possibility of starvation or dehydration. Now, the picture here that Christ gives us is... Not a comfortable one. The terms he uses, hunger and thirst, are not in any way suggesting a passive desire for spiritual nourishment. But rather, he's giving terms that indicate to us a starvation for righteousness. A desperate hungering to be conformed to God's will. Righteous living. My friends, if you've ever encountered a truly hungry or truly thirsty person, you understand the emphasis here. Because a starving person has a single, all-consuming passion to find food or find water. Nothing else has the slightest attraction or appeal to them. Nothing else gets their attention. And for the believer, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness... He pursues Christ with that same determination, a similar passion. This is a believer who's fully aware of his great need. He needs spiritual nourishment. There's an awareness that he needs spiritual feeding because without it, he won't make it. It means something that keeps going on and on until it's fully, what? Satisfied. Fully satisfied. It does not mean a passive feeling or a fleeting desire. 
No, this is an increasing desperation for the believer who is hungry, who's starving for righteousness. We sang this very truth this morning in in our service from Psalm 42, verse 1. It says, as the deer looks for, pants for, has a longing for water or flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. But I want you to notice as well that this hungering and thirsting is not short-term. The beatitude that Christ uses here is further intensified by the fact that hungering and thirsting is continual. It's ongoing. Blessed, it literally reads this, blessed those hungering and thirsting. It's active, yet continual. The words Jesus uses here are the present participle, and it signifies a continuous longing, a continuous seeking. This is not meant to be a five-minute microwave meal. You pop it in, and it's done. No, this is a continual, ongoing pursuit. This is, this is a continuous feast that you have. King David known for his tireless pursuit of God, expresses it this way in Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He continues in Psalm 17. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Folks, this is the way it should be for healthy believers. The believer never has enough of God. The believer never reaches just the right level of righteous living in his pursuit. He's always hungry. He's always continually seeking after Christ. So we've seen what righteousness means. We've seen that it brings happiness to those who pursue it. We've seen that the object of this pursuit of righteous living is Christ himself to put him on. And lastly, I want to look at what the result of our spiritual hunger is. The result of our spiritual hunger. What is the reward for hungering and for thirsting? What's the reward? Well, here we have one of the most gracious and glorious statements found in all of the scriptures. Happy Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Why? Well, they shall be satisfied. They will be filled. They will get what they desire. Again, I've said this before as we've looked at these Beatitudes. In in this very apparent list 
of contradictions from Jesus, right? Poor in spirit gets the kingdom of heaven. The mourning, what? They'll be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. And these apparent contradictions, we actually have, once again, a marvelous paradox. Because though believers continually seek for God's righteousness, it's an ongoing pursuit of righteous living and putting on Christ Always wanting more, never getting all of it, what happens? Nonetheless, they're satisfied. You and I, we may eat our favorite cut of steak or our favorite pie. There's a theme here this morning, all right, pie. So um, if you want to know my favorite ones, you can come talk to me afterwards. We'll work out a deal, okay? You can eat your favorite food, your steak, your pie. And you can eat and eat and eat until you can't take another bite. Yet your taste for those things continue to increase and increase. Why? Because you love it. Recently, my wife and I were introduced to a local creamery that's over... I'm not going to give it away because then all of you will go to it. And... um, Never mind. It's, it's over in Osceola. It's uh, the, the Crystal Creamery. And we were introduced to its milk and yogurt and ice cream. And I don't know if you've ever been guilty of this act. But have you ever taken ice cream home and you've picked out, the, you looked at all the flavors and you're like, oh, man, this is the one. And you take it home and it's, you know, 9 o'clock at night, maybe 10 and you're like, you know what, I shouldn't, but I love it. So what do you do? You appease your conscience by only taking one scoop, right? So you pull it out of the freezer, and you do the thing your mom told you never to do. You open it, and you just eat right out of the, right out of the bowl, right? Right out of the, uh, the carton. And you take a scoop, you put the lid back on, put it back in the freezer, and you sit there slowly enjoying your ice cream. But then once it's gone, and you sit there kind of trying to bring back any flavors that once were there, what do you do? Just one more, right? Just one more, right? Nobody's going to know. So you go back in, you pull it back out, take the top off, one more scoop, put the top back on, put it in the freezer, and you sit there and you just enjoy one last, final spoonful of ice cream. And then that spoonful's gone, and <laughs> you pull it back out, and what do you do? Okay, I'm just going to get a bowl, and we're going to put a whole bowl here, and that'll be good. It's, it's the very satisfaction of what we're consuming that makes us want more of it. When you eat some of those things, you find them fulfilling. You find them satisfying. And you say, I want more of it. My friends, the person who genuinely hungers and thirsts for God's righteousness finds it so nourishing that he wants more and more of it. He, he goes after it, and he finds more and more. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this paradox fascinating. Because, you see, the Christian is one who at one and the same time is hungering and thirsting, yet he's filled. And the more he's filled, what happens? The spiritual cycle continues. The more he's filled, the more he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. 
That's the blessedness of this Christian life. You may reach a certain stage of sanctification, but friends, you don't rest in that spot for the rest of your life. You go on changing from glory into glory. John 1.16 says that we've received from his fullness, we've received what? Grace upon grace. Grace added to grace. It goes on and on. We're perfect, yet not perfect. We're already something in Christ, but not yet fully. We're hungering and thirsting, yet filled and satisfied, but longing for more. Never having enough because it's so glorious and so wondrous. My friends, we're fully satisfied by him And yet, we're satisfied and yet, a supreme desire of ours is to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection of the dead. Christ gives us here a paradox, an apparent contradiction That is a spiritual cycle that as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. But as you are filled and satisfied, it it creates in you this longing for more and more. And your pursuit of righteousness continues on. My friends, my encouragement this morning is that you and I, we would not neglect the words of Christ. We would not neglect... And shun what he's calling us to do. These words should put our hearts to the test. We should not despise the pursuit of righteousness. Rather, we should love righteousness enough to pursue it intensely as those who hunger truly and thirst truly. Because God promises that if we hunger for righteousness we will not be sent away empty. We will receive the bread of life that will feed us for an eternity. If we thirst for righteousness, the Son of righteousness will come with living water that will fill our souls unto eternal life. Folks, we will be filled. That's the reward. We will be satisfied in the pursuit of righteousness. By God's grace, may we be a church, may we be a people who hunger and thirst and pursue righteous living by God's grace. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come to you knowing that so much else seeks for our attention, for our energy, for a place in our heart. And yet you have called us to pursue you alone. 
we've experienced many times the emptiness that comes from pursuing something else. Father, would you grant us grace to find blessedness and hungering and thirsting after you. May we be a people. May we be a church. May we be individuals and families who are starving for Christ. And as we experienced and are filled by him, we would desire more and more that we'd never be satisfied in our pursuit of Christ. We pray this in your son's name, amen.